walk alone. And as we walk, we must make the pledge that we shall always march ahead. We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied. As long as our bodies heavy with the fatigue of travel cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. We cannot walk alone. And as we walk, I've been known to flip channels uh, quite a bit. Uh, my TV uh, attention span is, is not real strong. And um, unless it's a really compelling story or a great ball game, I tend to lose focus pretty quick and, and flip through channels a lot. I occasionally flip by the, the section um, of channels that are, are labeled uh, Christian television. Um, and occasionally, there'll be somebody on one of those channels that um, has, uh, it seems to me, labeled themselves. Perhaps there are others that have given them this title, but it seems to me that they have labeled themselves as a prophet and used that as a title for themselves. And I'm not here really to dispute whether or not that's the case or not. It's just that I've noticed a trend of those on those television shows that label themselves as a modern-day prophet, that their message to the audience that they're speaking to is usually a message of great prosperity, something that you would want to hear and you would want to receive, that good things are coming your way. Now, I'm not sure who in my lifetime would definitely qualify as a biblical prophet, somebody who would look more like the prophets that we read in the Old Testament and hear their stories. I'm not for sure in my lifetime about that, but if, if I had to just put somebody out there based on what I see of the prophets in the Old Testament and, um, and what I know of in my lifetime, my history, I was born in 1963, and uh, in 1975... Uh, moved to Jackson, Mississippi, and that's where I attended junior high and high school, still in the, in the midst of a lot of stuff going on. 
But if I was just going to put a name out there, I, I, would, I would put Martin Luther King Jr. out there as a prophet. At least he certainly had a very prophetic type message. He had a very strong message. It was a very demanding message. At times it was an accusing message. And although there's a lot of things that, that people have tried to say this and that about his personal life, and I don't know the historical accuracy of, of all of that, I know this, his message was proven to be right and proven to be true and needed. But I do remember very much, even as his legacy began and after his assassination in 1965, I remember early in my, in my life hearing people talk about him as a troublemaker which would be another thing that would qualify him as a biblical prophet. Because every one of them, to the audience they spoke to, was a troublemaker. You know, why couldn't he just leave well enough alone? Why couldn't he just let us go on with the status quo as it existed? You see, God's prophets in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament typically delivered a message that was not popular with the audience that God intended to hear the message. The audience that God intended to receive it. The messages were usually something along these lines, just to put it in generic terms. The messages were usually something like this. You've really messed up. You're messing up right now. What you're doing is wrong. You need to repent. What you're doing is sinful. It's against God's law. It's against God's direction. It's wrong. You've got to stop it. You've got to repent. You've got to turn from that and go this way. You've got to change. And if you don't, judgment is coming. The justice, justice is going to roll down like the river. Now, there was always this qualifier that would come after that. If there is hope if you do change. So you see, hope and change is not such a new message, after all. One of those prophets was a man named Amos. He was not a priest. He was not of royal birth of any kind. He was a shepherd out on a hillside, and God called him away from his sheep to go and speak to his people and tell them they needed to change and repent, turn back to him. He's the one that said, let justice roll down like a mighty river. There was another prophet whose name was Micah. Micah was a contemporary of, of maybe more well-known prophets like Isaiah and Hosea. And Micah gave a very, very strong message that wasn't popular with his audience either. And today I want us to look at, just for a few minutes at God's not-so-nice message that came through the prophet Micah. A couple of main things about Micah's message to the people of God. The first one is this. God is not a fan of mixed worship. God's not a fan of mixed worship. Now, that doesn't mean two different styles of music. It doesn't have anything to do with whether you sit or stand or whether you wear a coat and tie or, or not. It, it's, it's none of that. It's not, a, it's not a matter of whether or not you worship in different languages or not. He says, God is not a fan of mixed worship. He's not a fan of those who say one thing in worship and live another way. 
He is not a fan of those who speak about God and say things about Him that they believe and they follow and they profess, but then their lifestyle says something completely different. Says God is not a fan of that at all. God is not cozy with hypocrites. And in Micah chapter 5, verse 10, you hear these very strong words of, of God saying this, In that day, says the Lord, I will slaughter your horses and destroy your chariots. I will tear down your walls and demolish your defenses. Defenses. I'll put an end to all witchcraft, and there will be no more fortune tellers. I'll destroy your idols, your sacred pillars, so you'll never again worship the work of your own hands. And I will abolish your idol shines with their astral poles and destroy your pagan cities. And I'll pour out my vengeance on all the nations that refuse to obey me. Now that's not all that nice of a message. The message right there is not, um, you know, I really, really, really like you so much. And I just, I just want to tell you, just keep on doing what you're doing. And everything will be okay. In fact, it's going to get a whole lot better. Just stay at it. That's not the message there. Through Micah, God was condemning their trust in their military might over their trust in Almighty God. He said, you can build up and strengthen all you want. But my will is still going to be accomplished. You need to put your trust in me. He condemned their worship and their devotion to other gods. And he condemned their refusal to be obedient to him. Now, if you, read, if you read all of Micah, you'll see bits and pieces there where the, where the people were still keeping up appearances. They were still uh, keeping up appearances as the people of God. I mean, they were still, yeah, there's mention of some other gods and stuff, but they were still doing their main worship, Hebrew worship of, of who God was supposed to be. They're still doing the right sacrifices here and there and those kinds of things. But their hearts were mixed. They were mixed. and In fact, Jesus talked about that kind of thing. He talked about it very strong in, in uh, Matthew chapter, chapter 15. Jesus is describing what mixed worship might look like. He's talking to the most religious people of his day. If, if there'd have been a church, they'd have been board members. They'd have been, they'd have been the leaders. And he said to them, You Pharisees and you teachers of religious law, why do, you, why do your disciples disobey our... They, they were asking Jesus these questions. Why do your disciples disobey our age-old traditions? And they, they ignore the ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. Jesus turned the tables back on them and said... All right, and why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? For instance, Jesus said, God says, honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully to father and mother must be put to death. But you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I vowed to give to God what I have given to you. You see, they were saying they were using their money for religious purposes instead of supporting parents who no longer could care for themselves. And Jesus said, in this way, you say they don't need, you say you don't need to honor your parents, and you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. You're hypocrites. And Isaiah was right when he prophesied 
about you when he said this. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship is a farce. For they teach man-made ideas as commands of God. Ten years ago this summer, this summer uh, back in, in June would have been the 10th anniversary of it. The St. Louis Cardinals, my lifelong favorite team, were, were scheduled to play a game against the Chicago Cubs, their historic rival at Wrigley Field in Chicago. But the game was canceled. The, the Cards' uh, top pitcher at the time, their ace pitcher, uh, a former Astro named Daryl Kyle, 33 years old, had had a 12-year career in the major leagues, been a three-time All-Star, that morning, he was found dead in his hotel room in Chicago. Not too long before that, Daryl Kyle had had a, a physical, a physical at the, you know, at the, under the auspices of the team. Six foot five, well over 200 pounds, but, but good proportion, good, good, seemed in very good health. But just hours after his, his death, an autopsy revealed that he died from a massive heart attack that the main coronary artery in his heart was 90% blocked. He, he appeared to be healthy, but inside his heart was diseased. Jesus and Micah remind us that appearances and what we do in public for people to see can be misleading. The Pharisees looked very religiously impressive, but their hearts were far from God. And God is not a fan of mixed worship. Secondly, Micah tells us this, God despises, that's a strong word, God despises injustice. He hates it, despises it. In um, Micah chapter 2, it says this, What sorrow awaits you, you who lie awake at night thinking up evil plans? You rise at dawn and hurry to carry them out simply because you have the power to do so. When you want a piece of land, you find a way to seize it. When you want someone else's house, you take it by fraud and violence. You cheat a man of his property, stealing his family inheritance. But this is what the Lord says. I will reward your evil with evil. You'll be paid it back. You won't be able to pull your neck out of the noose. You'll no longer walk around proudly or it will be a terrible time. You see, they were abusing power. God despises that. They were cheating people out of what was right. God despises that. They were, they were lying and cheating and deceiving. God despises that. In other places in Micah, it talks about how they were neglecting and abusing the poor and the hurting among them. And God's not a fan of that at all. Now when we hear these kind of words and these kind of messages and these kind of scriptures, there's maybe something within us that says, couldn't you read us something nice? How about it, Pastor, what if, wouldn't it have been a little nicer of you today for me to walk in here and hear the Lord is my shepherd? I shall not want. Which is, the word of God and not to be 
belittled. But that's not always the message that God delivers. And there's something about when we hear a confronting, confrontational, confronting us, we don't really want to hear that type of message. In the words of the old R&B song that I remember from the 70s, we'd, we'd rather hear, or we'd rather say to the Lord, tell me something good. And maybe we'd like to hear the gospel song also from that decade that declares something good is going to happen to you this very day. But that's not always God's message. I don't feel all that popular right now. <laughs> in fact, the, the people respond to that. They, they almost speak for us. In Micah chapter 2, verse 6, it says this. The, the people responding to God, don't say such things. Don't prophesy like that. Don't preach like that. Such disasters will never come our way. And the response back is, should you talk that way, family of Israel, family of God? Will the Lord's Spirit have patience with such behavior? It says this, if you would do what is right, you would find my words to be comforting. In his uh, book, When a Nation Forgets God, um, author Erwin Lutzer tells a, a story of, of uh, some Christian folks that were living in uh, Germany during the time of Hitler. And one of those men told him a story that went something like this. He said, I, I lived in Germany during World War II and during the era of the Holocaust and all the things that went on. And he said, I considered myself a Christian. We'd heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from, us, from that because we just didn't really think there was anything we could do to stop it said there was a railroad track that, that ran behind our, our church. And each Sunday morning, we could hear the whistle in the distance and the wheels coming over the tracks. And we were disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. And we realized that the train was carrying Jews in the cars like they were cattle. And week after week, the whistle would blow, and we dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew that we could hear the cries of the Jews en route to the death camp, and, and the screams that we would hear from the train just were tormenting to us. He said it got to be where we knew the time the train was coming, and when we heard the whistle blow, we would start singing our hymns. And by the time the train came past our church, we would be singing at the top of our voices as loud as we could. And if we heard the screams, we'd sing even louder to drown them out. He says, years have gone by, and no one talks about that anymore. But he said, I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. And may God forgive me and forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians and we did nothing to intervene. Paul Simon's a, a great uh, musician, somebody whose talents uh, I appreciate a lot, both his musical uh, 
skills and, and ability to write music and also his lyrical content and ability. But a while back, he did an interview for Rolling Stone magazine, and, and in that interview, he offered a, a few thoughts on, in response to some questions, he offered some thoughts on what he thinks God requires of us. And he said this, the only thing God requires from us is to enjoy life and love. It doesn't matter if you've accomplished anything. You don't have to do anything but just appreciate that you're alive and love. And that's the whole point. That sounds nice. It really does. And, and I, don't, I don't, I mean, you, you run a risk when you take on something like that of saying, you mean you don't, you don't believe God wants us to enjoy life? You don't believe God wants us to love? Oh, I believe that. But that's not the end of the message. In contrast to the question, what does God want from us? Here's what the prophet Micah says. And these may be words that you've heard before. Maybe the only words you might remember from Micah. They're good words to live by. Micah 6 and verse 8 says this. Know, O people of God, the Lord has told you what is good and this is what he requires of you to do what is right to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God the question that led up to that was what what can we bring to the Lord what's acceptable what's a good enough sacrifice how many animals what quality of of all that what should we bring should we bring sacrifice our firstborn children like some of their neighboring nations were doing and the response was, no, here's what God is looking for. So what does God want from me, want from you? According to the prophet's message here today, it's to do what is right. Or in some translations, to do justice. To practice justice. Not just talk about it, but to practice doing the right thing, the just right thing by other people. And then to love mercy. And maybe the response is, well, don't we all love mercy? I mean, I certainly love it for myself. I mean, I've been in a lot of situations where, where I needed mercy because justice was not going to be nice. Don't we all love mercy? But if you understand the context, it's not just mercy for yourself. You love mercy for others. And then you walk humbly with your God. A recognition that you are dependent on God for the ability to accomplish anything of value. Yeah, you've got talents and skills, and yeah, maybe you've got a great work ethic, but you are dependent on God to accomplish anything that's of real value. And any of your boasting about your accomplishment better point to Him and reflect Him as the source. What kind of God 
gives out these not-so-nice messages? What kind of God tells people they need to change their life? What kind of God says, no, you, it's not okay to keep doing what you're doing? and to keep going that direction? What kind of God says you need to turn away from that and repent and change and turn to me and reject anything that doesn't have anything to do with me? What kind of God is like is giving us those kinds of messages? At the end of the, the book of Micah, the final two or three verses of, that, of the prophet's words says this, Where is another God like you? who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his special people. You will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. And once again, you will have compassion on us. And I love this right here. You will trample our sins under your feet. If we confess and repent, God will take everything we've done, trample it under his feet, and throw it into the depths of the ocean. Is that good news? And you will show us your faithfulness and unfailing love as you promised to our ancestors in faith, Abraham and Jacob, long ago. When you think back to that life verse, 6, 8, do what is right, love mercy, walk humbly with your God, the question may come, can anybody really live like that, though? Can anybody really live a, live a just and merciful, humble life with God? I think a, a New Testament response is, is needed to that question. Because it brings the answer to the whole situation into picture, and that's Jesus. The Apostle Paul, in one of his letters uh, from, from Chains, wrote to, to his friend Titus. Titus was somebody who came out of, a, of a, a culture that didn't know God and whose life had been radically transformed. And Paul, in his letter to Titus, said, You know, Titus, we too once were foolish and disobedient, and we were misled. And we became slaves to many lusts and pleasures, and our, our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But when God, our Savior, revealed His kindness and love, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit, and He generously poured out the Spirit on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of His grace, He declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we can inherit eternal life. And then he encouraged Titus to live that out. About four years ago, there was a judge in uh, a municipal court in Ohio. His name is Paul Herbert. And Judge Herbert was, uh, was using Rick Warren's, Pastor Rick Warren from Saddleback Church in Southern California, whose, whose church has been inspirational to, uh, to churches and to our nation in the last couple of decades, whose church spawned the Celebrate Recovery Ministry that, that we have gathering here on Wednesday nights and helping people with their hurts and habits and hangups. But he had a book that a lot of us looked at a few years ago 
Rick Warren did called The Purpose Driven Life. And Judge Herbert was, was using that book, The Purpose Driven Life, to try and disciple his teenage daughters. And one night, one of his teenage daughters asked him this question. She said, Daddy, what's your purpose in life? And Judge Herbert gave her kind of a vague answer about trying to be a light for God on the bench, you know, the court bench. But he said as he went to bed that night, he was restless, and he prayed candidly to God. He said, God, I realize that, that being a judge is a unique position. And not many people get this opportunity. Can you show me a way, God, that I can be more significant for you in my work? And he said about nine months later, in his court, after seeing a typical procession of domestic violence victims come before him, the sheriff brought a, a prostitute into Judge Herbert's courtroom. And Herbert realized that, that she looked exactly like one of the domestic violence victims that he'd seen come before his bench previously. And in that moment, he said it began to shake up his thinking, the categories of his life. And he went back home and he began researching the criminology of prostitution and, and what he learned stunned him. He said he discovered that around 87% of prostitutes have been sexually abused, most of them in childhood, typically starting around age eight. And they often start using drugs to deal with that trauma or when they hit their early teens, and many of them have run away from home or run away from foster care, and then they get preyed on by the, by the predatory pimps, which it's amazing to me that we've somehow in our culture adopted the word pimp as something good. The predatory pimps who then take them and trade their flesh in a commercial business. And Judge Herbert decided to apply what he'd learned directly to his work. And he launched a new program that's called Catch Court, C-A-T-C-H, which stands for Changing Attitudes to Change Habits. And prior to that program, prostitutes simply cycled in and out of his court, in and out of jail, but through a, a two-year program that he established, women convicted of prostitution received drug treatment and counseling. Their movements were monitored out of that, and they were able to get into support groups, and they were to appear before Judge Herbert weekly in the courtroom to talk about their progress. And the judge described some of those who had completed the program. He said one... One woman who was sold when she was a little girl by her mother to older men for drugs today is in a community college finishing a degree. Another woman who was kidnapped by a motorcycle gang and then raped and then transported to other gangs and sold for sex, she's now been clean from a heroin addiction for two years. But then he said, Judge, Judge Herbert said this, but there's something else that happened in all of this. It's something that happened in me. He said the Holy Spirit has begun to reveal to me how much I've been forgiven and how similar I really am to the individuals that have come before my court bench. 
And he said, that discovery was really hard. He said, my job, my vocation is to be a judge. But he said, the farther I go and grow in my faith, the more I realize that I'm just like most of them. And it makes me more understanding, more kind, and more merciful. We all, everybody in this room, definitely myself included, we all desperately need the mercy of God. We all need to hear and receive the message that God calls us to know him and to serve him. And when we do that, that'll lead to a life of real justice and real mercy. May it be so. Lisa, will you come? I'd like for you to bow your heads for a moment. And I want you to think with me, if you will, for a moment about your life and the needs that you have in your life. And usually when we think of needs, um, we think about the things that we need God to do for us. We need uh, physical healing, perhaps, and we should ask for that this morning and for God's mercy. We may think about financial needs. We may think about needs of relationships within our families or struggles we're having elsewhere and we need God to provide. And these are pressing needs on our hearts. And today we should ask for God's mercy and help with all of those things. But we ought to also think this morning about what, what has God been saying and speaking into my life? Is there a place where he's called me to repentance? Where he's calling me to change? Is there anything that I have known to do for the good and I have neglected to do it? And for that, we should all pray for God's mercy in our lives. I want you to uh, receive the mercy of the Lord this morning as you ask Him. You've got prayer cards in your worship folders if you've filled those out. And, and there you've talked about a need that needs God's hand, God's attention. You might want to bring it forward to place it here in faith today. If you just know that deep down you need the mercy of God in your life for any reason, you might want to come and kneel at our altars. A good response anytime we hear God's voice is to just be humble and say, God, here I am. Let's stand together, and if you feel the need to come and pray, let's do so.
ourselves this morning. Jesus, I've forgotten the words that you have spoken. Promises that burned within my heart and now grow dim. With a doubting heart, I found the paths of earthly wisdom. Forgive me for my unbelief. Renew the fire again. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on me. I have built an altar where I worship things of man. And I have taken journeys that have drawn me far. But now I am returning to your mercy ever flowing. Pardon my transgressions. Help me love you again. Help us, Lord. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Thank you for your mercy poured out on the cross. We 
thank you for your mercy that continues to flow through us, your river of forgiveness. Lord, I pray that everyone here today would be wise enough to seek your mercy, humble enough to confess our need for you and to recognize that all good things come from you. And may we leave from this place with a determination to do what is right by the grace of God. To love mercy not just for ourselves, but for others. And to walk in humility and give you the glory. God's people said, Amen. Amen. May it be so.